Time is the most precious resource in all the world. Time cannot be sped up, and time cannot be slowed down. It passes moment by moment. Time is always available, but time, it cannot be saved. There are periods where we wish time would stop, and there are days in which we wish, wish time would go faster. But unlike the YouTube video, you can't go back, you can't skip ahead, and you cannot pause. The clock keeps t- ticking. The moments move on to more moments. Time marches on. Um, our oldest daughter, Anna, she came out crying at birth. And after a few hours of crying, the nurse said, she acts like a drug baby. We were a little bit shocked, our first child, not really wanting to hear this, but as new parents, we thought, okay. Um, But that should have been a huge hint to us, to Heather and I, that the next year, the time would go very, very slow. (laughs) We long for the seconds, the minutes, and the hours to come more quickly. Thankfully, Anna is now a junior in high school, and she does not cry nearly as much, hardly at all. And she's preparing for college. And as the day draws near for her to leave for college, Heather and I begin to watch or to wait for those moments, and we desire them to go a little bit more slowly. Somehow we remember more fondly the time of the crying or the wrestling in the seats or whatever the case may be. We don't mind the shushing. We remember those with shushing of our cries with a little more longing. Time seems to go faster now, and so it seems. Time, it doesn't yield to our feelings. It marches on at an even pace. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Stephen read earlier, is our text this morning. And it speaks about time and the reality that people, that is people, living in the world under the sun, we are temporal beings. We exist within time. We have a beginning, we have an end, with a number of moments in between. And yet... These moments are precious, and they matter, for God is eternal. We're going to look at our chapter 3 in three parts this morning, three building parts. This is kind of the outline. It'll build on itself. So the first is momentary man. This will be verses 1 through 8. Then we'll have momentary man faces eternal God. This will be verses 9 through 15. And then finally, to put it all together, momentary man faces eternal God at death. And the conclusion of that matter is that our moments matter because one day we will meet God, we will stand before God. So first, let's consider our first point, momentary man. Verses 1 through 8 are probably the most famous and oft quoted in this entire book. And as you heard Stephen read it, you probably knew the words he said. In 1965, if you're a little bit older or you listen to the oldies, the birds wrote the song, and on their album, Turn, 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 which basically quotes this text. Every time I read it, I have to hum the tune in my mind. So it's famous because of the song, but even more, it's often referenced during particular times of trying times. We often hear it today. You've probably told yourself there's a season for everything, this, as verse 1 says, and with the expectation that we're going to make it through this tough time. Many of us have clung to the concepts of seasons as 2020 is rolled on. We're waiting for 2021. As the year ends, magically everything will come to an end. We free from viruses and smoke and masks and whatever distance learning might be, and we'll think the season is over. Humanity hopes for that 2021 to begin a new season. The 
wide use of this passage, usage of this passage, is also because every person, whatever spiritual background or lack thereof, can sing or hum or recite the tune and think this in their life. You can believe in God or not and find the poetic nature of these verses to be profoundly true. The poem on its own inspires man to have hope for a better time to see some purpose in life. If you count them up in the first eight verses, you'll see that the preacher of Ecclesiastes, he poetically expounds 14 contrasting couplets of universal experience. Some contrasting uh, are positive and negative, like um, a time of weeping and a time of laughing, or a time of war and a time of peace. There's also ones that are just simple statements of life fact, like a time of planting and reaping, or a time of keeping silent and a time of speaking. Neither of those are, um, there's nothing moral or better one or the other. So as we hear the preacher's words, we can universally say, yes, I believe that to be true. There are times where we wish would never end. There are times we wish never happened. There are just some things that just are. But we can relate to this range of experiences. So, but can we find real purpose in this? As verse 1 says, many would find it, a time for every matter under heaven. And so the contrasting poem indicates, it seems like, this is the answer to man's problem, men and women's problem of finding purpose and reason. But, as a casual reader, we can go in the wrong direction if we take it this way. Verses 1 through 8 are not to be read alone, And they aren't really to inspire hope and give purpose apart from God. Rather, they are to expose the passing moments of time and the finite nature of men and women. Man is for a moment, and then he passes. And without God in view, the right right way to look at this poem is that life is limited. Simply a beginning, an end, with some time in between. Various repeating changing events that bookend birth and death, or bookended by birth and death. With a viewpoint that only sees life under heaven, under the sun, on the earth, the truths of verses 1 through 8 can offer pleasing poetry, but not real hope. Rather than inspire hope, they reveal the finite nature of men and women. Friends, under heaven, we experience many seasons. And these seasons and times scream to the fact that life is repetitive and passing. Each generation comes and each generation goes. Each generation has war, each generation has peace. Each generation builds up and tears down, but time does not stop. Time passes, and change is but a cycle of repeating events. The preacher's point is not to find purpose under the sun his point is that, is that we find, is not to find purpose under the sun, it is to, find, to see that man is momentary, man is temporal. And men and women that are bound by time are limited. Seasons come and seasons go. Now, if you're a young parent, I think it's important for you to know that your child will not always cry. You will sleep again. <laughs> if, you're, if you're struggling with school, Know that relief will come. As you stick with it, writing an essay will get easier. The math problem will get easier. If, you're, if your parents, let's say, for example, are too strict, you will someday be on your own, and then you can gr- guide your own kids. 
It's good to know that trying times will pass, but don't seek to find lasting hope in passing seasons. This will lead to disappointment and it will lead to discontentment. For we'll always be looking for better times. You'll never be able to enjoy and rejoice in the present. And even more, don't try to find purpose in life under heaven. Stopping at the poetry of verse verse 8 is deceiving. We need to consider the concluding prose of chapter 3 that gives real hope to people with finite timelines in their lifetime. So, let's build on our outline here in part 2. Now momentary man faces eternal God. Verse 9, it begins with a question. What's the question? It says, what gain has the worker from his toil? This question has been asked over the last 2,500 years ago since this original question was asked. It's still asked today. And the fact, this fact in and of itself, is evidence that time keeps ticking. We have the same questions. Men and women back then and men and women today know that life is passing. And we know that seasons come and go and then repeat. We experience the exhaustion of laboring only to have to labor again. And so we ask the logical question, is there any lasting gain from my work? Does my toil have any purpose? That's the question asked back then. It's a question that's asked today. The 14 contrasting couplets of poetry about time make the preacher ask this framing question. And get this, unlike the rest, much of the rest of his book, the preacher here begins in verse 10 to look from the earth to the heavens. The preacher gives us a view of human experience from a heavenly perspective. Momentary man here faces the timeless eternal God. This is the God who exists outside of earth and time and space. The preacher is looking at life from a heavenly perspective. So, in contrast to a life without acknowledging God, verses 10 and 11 tell us that the work of man is not without design and purpose, for God gives it. Look at verse 10. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. God has given his children work to do. And the preacher declares that the timing of that work is determined by God so as to make it beautiful. Though seasons come and go, and though they are unpredictable to man, the view from heaven is different. God is orchestrating this beautiful plan in what seems on earth to be without order. So, for us, only a believer can be confident in their life, that their life is a work of art. Without God, life is like a boy's finger painting. You ever seen a boy do finger painting? It's unorderly, it's clashing, it's purposeless. Only to be cherished by the blindness of a parent. Without God, life, sorry, with God, life is a master painter before his canvas, full of depth and texture and color and purpose and care. Whether it feels like it or not, God is making everything beautiful in its time. This is the view not from earth, but from heaven. In addition, verse 11 goes on to say, also he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. From the earth... We cannot perceive the beauty God is making. Man is sinful and fallen, 
and thus the world is broken. But even in this fallen state, God, look at this, he has graciously placed the intimate or the innate knowledge of eternity inside each individual. Each one of us, in the quiet of our minds, we take pause to think, have contemplated the future, the unknown, the time after death. God has put this in the hearts of men and women. He has not placed this in any other beast. The child is the one who asks, uh, what happens when I die? The cat or the dog? I've never seen a cat or dog ask that question. The scientist searches for origins of life and the cosmos. The philosopher asks, what does it mean to exist? Men and women consider if there's a God. Beasts do not consider these questions. Your cat has never asked that. God has made people in such a way that they alone contemplate time outside their own time. But verse 11 also explains that the notion of eternity which dwells in the heart, get this, it's beyond the understanding of men and women. The child, the scientist, the philosopher, no one can find out all of what God has done and will do. Church, I think this knowledge, or the lack of knowledge as the case may be, is meant to humble us. Momentary man, when faced with the vastness of eternity, is meant to be overwhelmed in awe. To see our finiteness in contrast to the eternal God. But at the same time, to recognize that even in a fallen, broken world, God directs and designs the times and the seasons for ultimate beauty. That's an amazing thing. And God has placed a longing for eternal beauty in our hearts. That's why we like things that are beautiful. It's attractive to us. Brothers and sisters, if, if, if this is you, if you long for this time of beauty, this is evidence of God's work in your life. Embrace that. Let it drive you to want the beauty of God, to see his work. But until that time, God has given us some glimmers of what will ultimately be. This is why verses 12 and 13 encourage us to rejoice and take pleasure. A God-centered focus allows us to rejoice in the business God has given on earth. I perceived, verse 12, that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. I also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Now, from an earthly perspective, really life is dull, it's repetitive. The sun rises and the sun sets. Each day we eat, we work, we sleep, we rest, the time passes. But if by faith in God's word, you can look beyond the earth to eternity, the eyes of faith can see the beauty that God is making. It's not now, it's not now, but it will be. And the somewhat surprising truth is that those who look with faith to the heavens, to what God is doing, can actually enjoy this earth more fully. I believe that very much to be true. The preacher, in looking about, perceives the goodness on earth because he has an eternal perspective at this point. You can be joyful in a job well done, even if someday it will someday need to be redone. You can enjoy the taste of a good meal, even when hunger pains will come again, or take pleasure in a a drink, even though your thirst will be parched again. A heavenly perspective makes the things on earth more purposeful and enjoyable and have more meaning. And since God is eternal, we can be confident that his work will be complete while we're enjoying the things here. 
Look at verses 14 and 15. It talks about God's eternal nature. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it, so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is already has been, that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. These verses might blow your mind if you think about it long enough. God is eternal. He's self-existent. And he has always been, and he always will be. He endures. And get this. He sees our present and our future as it has already taken place in the past. So just think about that a little bit. Just for a moment. Don't let it hurt your mind if you think about that. (laughs) For God, what I do tomorrow has already been. He is eternal God. And not only is God eternal, but his works are enduring. What God does cannot be undone. No one can thwart his work. What he establishes is permanent. This is the truth. This is a truth, really, that inspires worship of God. Think back. Remember when, if you're reading your Bibles, remember when Jesus told Peter that the gates of Hades would not prevail against his church? Remember that? Matthew 16. He told Peter this before, what? Before the church existed and before people had any notion of a church. So I ask you, has the church faced trials since then? Yes. Has the church faced grave perils since then? Yes. Has the church gone into hiding since then? Yes. But have the gates of Hades prevailed? No, they have not. God is eternal. God's Son is eternal. And therefore, what he establishes will never fail. Therefore, the Christian church can be certain of our future in Christ. That is good news. And so, we should worship him with reverent, and it says fear, because we are but a moment, and we have seasons and times, but God, what God does is forever. Our smallness in comparison to him should bring this holy fear upon us that is very good. I was thinking about fear as I read this, and um, reverent fear, I think, is like this, at least for me. It's like standing on the edge of a high mountain precipice. You climb up high. You look over that rocky cliff. In my heart, it begins to race a little bit. My stomach churns as I, I see the, the ground way below. My knees actually get literally wobbly, and so I sort of bow down to steady myself to grab onto a rock. I ask this to all of us. Do you fear God? Not all fear is good. There are many fears that are ungodly. But the fear of God is right and good. I am right to fear the fall of a high precipice. The fear urges me away from the destruction. The fear of God, it does the same. God is great beyond words. And grasping his eternal nature causes the heart to race, the stomach to churn, the knees to wobble, and the posture to bow. Momentary man, when faced with eternal God, it is reason to fear. But did you know that fearing God actually lessens fear? Fear is generally a response to feeling out of control. When I stand over that cliff and the wind blows, I feel out of control, and so I bow down to gain more control. Fearing God brings less fear in my life because in fearing God, I relinquish my own control and I let God control my life. 
And since God is eternal and he's working on a beautiful design, my worries about the here and now, this moment, are lessened. I can be confident in him. Fear of God gives me greater confidence, less fear. The fear of God changes how I live. It makes me a worshiper. Fearing God enables me to relinquish control to him, and it makes me think more clearly about the use of the times and the seasons that he has given to me. Brothers and sisters, if you are fearful, don't fight your fears. Don't fight your fears. Redirect them to God because he can be trusted. The fear of God is right and it is good. Now, the point in time where every momentary man meets eternal God, it is coming. And that takes us to verses 16 through 22, our third part of this building outline Momentary man faces eternal God at death. In verse 16, the preacher observes that justice is undone. And he expresses the cry of multitudes of people in history. It's a longing for justice. Look at verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place, that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. For seasons of life to have purpose and meaning, then there really must be justice. If the wicked go unpunished and the righteous are wicked, then actions have little meaning in life, and life is very vain. Here the preacher is bemoaning what he sees in the world. And again, after 2,500 years of life under the sun, the preacher grieves over injustice, and really nothing has changed. We have grievances of injustice. Now, I know there's different opinions on this, but hear me out. Think about the racial protests in our country. Much of the present outcry in our countries with, with regard to race is due to a history of injustice in places where there should be justice. And because we live in a fallen world, no area is without wickedness. But when justice and righteousness are not found in places of justice, it is all the more concerning for people. And people cry out. And sometimes their righteous cries for justice contain injustice. It's a mixture. There is sin even in the cries for justice. There's injustice in all parties. This is the facts of life under the sun. But it's not race alone. We see church leaders that exploit church members. You're supposed to find justice and righteousness there. We know parents abuse their children. We see employers defraud their employees. The list could go on and on. We know this. So in our world, there is a cry for justice and a search for meaning in life. And if the preacher, he only looked under the sun, he would leave really hopeless. But in verse 17, the preacher again looks from earth to God with eyes of faith. Let me read that verse. He said in his heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. Notice how verse 1 of this chapter, verse 1 and verse 17 are very similar. But verse 17 adds something that you don't see in those first verses. In verse 1 it says there is a time for every matter under heaven. But verse 17, when the view is from heaven, there is a time for every matter, but that also says, and work to be judged. The view from heaven answers the call for justice. Judgment makes the moments of man's temporal life 
oh so important. The 14 contrasting couplets of time in verses 1 through 8 are not meaningless because God will judge people for every matter, each season. And the injustices of this world will be rectified by God. For us personally, how we love others matters. Our honesty with others matters. The way that we express anger and when we express anger matters. How we use our authority matters. And not only do our actions matter, but every person around us, their actions matter. Because the eternal God will judge each matter, every matter. This is reassuring in a world where justice seems undone. Now, the thought of justice, it leads the preacher to that time of the end of all living things. And this is what we see in verses 18 through 20. Let me read it. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breadth, and man has no advantage over the beasts for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. One of the dysfunctions of people, of men and women, as a result of sin is that we think ourselves invincible. That seems to be especially true for young men when they want to jump, on, jump off of things and such. And though um, we might know that judgment is to come, we might observe death, our sinful pride within us is filled with the false sense of, like, immortality. I'm going to do it. And people have fought hard to prolong life, to find the fountain of youth, to find a cure for aging. But all through that, we all know people are not immortal. And God uses death as a final test of people. It's a test of humility. And if a man will not admit his frailty and acknowledge God in the face of death, the the test even grows more painful as time goes on. For the man watches the beasts around him they breathe and they die and they fall to the ground and decompose. And he watches his relatives breathe and die and fall to the ground and decompose. From dust they were created and to dust they return. The times of working, the times of planting, the times of sowing are left and they're lost to death. Nothing that was done mattered. Life is vain. There's death. And death makes one consider if the seasons and times of life, do they matter? And if you live from this under-the-sun perspective, you really are left with vanity. What is the point? But is death the end? When momentary man faces the eternal God at death, is all vanity? Let's look at the last two verses of chapter 3. This is kind of the question that's being asked. Who knows... Where the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beasts goes down to the earth. Is there any different? So I saw there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see all who can bring him to see what will be after him? So really this is the question of the ages. What happens when a finite man, a man who has a life and then a death, comes to his end? Does he go into the grave? and cease to exist like the beasts? Or is there more to come when he meets the eternal God at his death? And 
What of the judgment that we've spoken of and read about? If you've lived, if you live in the time when the preacher lived, there were hints in the Old Testament scriptures, they didn't call it the Old Testament, but there was hints in the scriptures about life after death. The preacher himself in this text, he's giving us hints about life after death, but there was really no definitive answer. And the preacher here, look at his, he disclosed, he says, who knows? Who can bring him to see what will be after him? The preacher really has no solid, definite answer about life after death for him. Now consider this. Many years later, there was another preacher. He was a great teacher. He was a Jewish teacher. And he was also confused about life after death. I I think probably some of you know him. He was told that to enter the kingdom of God, he must be born again. His response was, you know, how can that be? Must I enter into my mother's womb again? That doesn't make sense to me. I won't fit. The great teacher, his name was Nicodemus, had studied all his life, but he still had no real answers. But the one who stood before him had some definitive answers. He knew all of what happens after death. And how did he know? Well, he came from heaven. And he addressed Nicodemus by saying this, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Most of us, I think all of us, know who said these words. These are the words of Jesus recorded in John chapter 3. He knows what is to come because he has seen what is to come. The eternal Son of God left the eternal heavens and became the Son of Man, entering into our temporal life on earth. And he humbled himself what did he do? He experienced the seasons of human life. Times of weeping and laughing. Times of mourning and dancing. Times of war and peace. And the eternal son miraculously experienced the time of birth. And even more miraculously, he has experienced the time of death. The eternal son, the eternal son died and was brought to the grave. And actually, if you read further in your Bibles, you learn about Nicodemus. And you learn that Nicodemus actually laid the body of Jesus in the grave with his friend Joseph. Nicodemus was forever changed by the truth that came from Jesus' mouth. Jesus had definitive answers about life after death. So, after meeting Jesus, Nicodemus' life would never be the same. He knew that judgment would come. And he was convinced that those who believed in Christ would not be condemned. But those who did not believe were condemned already for their sin and their unbelief. And Jesus' death, it forever changed death. Think of that. Jesus' death forever changed death. The uncertainty of what happens after death is no more. And each of us has the opportunity, like Nicodemus, to admit, admit our own inability to know what comes after death and to believe in the Son of God, to believe His Word. 
This book of Ecclesiastes, you can read it again and again, it is actually meant to trouble us so that we search for truth. We can't figure it out. We are meant to be troubled by the passing of time and confronted with eternity to come. I pray this book is making you think about your life and your death. So let me conclude with, the, with hope that's found in Christ. The death of Jesus was a time of love and hate, one of those seasons we read, read of. It was hatred of the Son of Man when they lifted God's Son It was hatred of the Son of Man by the people in this world when they lifted God's Son upon the cross. While at the same time, it was the love of the Son of God that the Son of Man was lifted up upon the cross. This was a time, a moment of love and hate. But this moment in time changed death forever in the eternal state of multitudes of people. Momentary man will face the eternal God at death. But for the followers of Christ, the death is entrance into eternal life and joy. It is the passing from this vain world into eternity with God. There, you will never wish for time to speed up or slow down or pause. For it is in that time where everything is made beautiful by God. I encourage you, enjoy the simple pleasures of this life as a gift from God. But let the vanity of this life push you to Jesus who has transformed the tragedy of death into the gate of heaven for all who believe. Now I know, and I would be remiss if I didn't close by doing this. If you don't follow Christ, if you're not certain of if you desire to follow Christ, I encourage you to follow Christ. This life, just think about it. It's vain. And without Jesus, this life really has no meaning and hope. It kind of goes around and around. There's difficulties, there's troubles. But if you believe on the Son of God, if you believe on the Son of God, then you will be forgiven of your sins and judgment will be passed over and you will be transformed like Nicodemus was back then, back then and many of us have been transformed by Jesus. By believing in Christ and receiving eternal life that is found in Jesus you will never regret it because there's purpose, there's destiny. God is making all things beautiful for those who follow him. So let me pray for you. Let us pray for each one of us who will be transformed by God's word. word. Lord, we want to admit um, right now that things in this life that we see, they trouble us. As well as your word troubles us at times, it shakes us up. But we are thankful for the good news of Jesus. That um, the time comes when we do die. We know each one will. That in Christ, we are safe. In Christ, we are secure. And in Christ, we know that there will be eternal goodness and blessing. Lord, I pray for those who do not know you. That the blinders on their eyes or the, the stubbornness of not wanting to follow you will be broken down and they will turn their lives over to you and walk with you and find the joy that is in Christ. Lord, help each of us this week enjoy what you've given here, but to always focus on the eternal, to focus on you and to find our meaning and our purpose in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.